0: The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 17. This message was given during the evening service on October 30th, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. This is series number three from 1 Peter chapter one. Follow with me verse one down to verse six of 1 Peter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. By the way, that's another of the great verses that I did not use this morning to show that all who are saved are transformed. Notice by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Chosen to obey, chosen to be sanctified. That shows that there is no such thing as non-transformational salvation. Verse 2, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this is the beginning, verse 6 is, of series number 3. We're still in Roman numeral 1 at the top of your note sheet. Christians are to be joyful despite suffering or trials. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Christians are to be joyful despite trials. Letter A, the Christian's joy is supposed to be connected to his salvation, not good times. In this you greatly rejoice. This refers back to the previous text and the issue of salvation and being born again in verse 3. That is the basis for our joy, mega joy as the Greek would say. Letter B, Christian joy is to operate in the battlefield of suffering. They operate at the same time, joy and suffering. That's why it says in verse 6, even though, now, for a little while. You're to greatly rejoice, even though now. It's to occur at the same time. And so Peter now gives us four marks of suffering, as your note sheet says, in larger type. We've seen the first two. Mark number one is Christian suffering is temporary. For a little while, that means this life is temporary. It doesn't mean your trials and suffering will only last a few minutes in this life. As we studied that concept of uh, for a little while, we realized that what Peter's referring to as other passages helped us to understand the same, same type of phrase that he is referring to the small amount of time in this life as Christians before eternity. Mark number two Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian to grow in holiness. This is not an option. If you want to be holy, if you want to be godly, you have to walk the road of suffering. To avoid suffering is to avoid holiness. To avoid holiness is to call into question whether we're truly converted, as Mark number four this morning in transformational salvation that we looked at was that a true believer hungers for holiness. So, to be holy, suffering is a major tool that God uses to produce that. We're currently in Mark number three, Christian suffering is distressing. So number one is, for a little while, first mark of suffering. Number two, the necessity of suffering as a Christian. And number three, the distressing nature of all Christian suffering. It's one Greek verb, as your note sheet shows you in the Greek. Lupe thentes is how you pronounce that Greek word that is listed right there. You have been distressed is four words in the English, but it is one word in the Greek. We defined, two weeks ago, we defined what this word distress means. In your note sheet, this is not a word for physical torture and martyrdom, but the mental anguish which comes with trials, including these. Write them down by way of review. Distress includes sadness, sorrow, disappointment. Sadness, sorrow, disappointment. This is what is the encompassing aspect of this issue of distress. A one-word definition would be grief. Grief over the trial. That's not sinful. It could be sinful, but by itself, divorced from context, it is not sinful. So in order to understand when our grief can be sinful and when it isn't, letter B, last time I continued to instruct you scripturally on what good distress versus bad distress is. Let's remind ourselves what good distress or grief is. This is extremely important. It is sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but wanting Christ's will more. It is sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but wanting Christ's will more. That's good distress. That's good grief from suffering. God does not expect us to not have grief or sadness over our hardships. It is okay to have that. But the safety is that we don't want to get out from under that distressing trial no matter what. We want God's will no matter what. So, because such godly saints want God's will first, their joy remains despite the pain of the trial. And notice you greatly rejoice though distressed. Greatly rejoicing, though grieved. You can have grief and joy at the same time. This verse proves it. In this you greatly rejoice, though now you are grieving, distressed. Sadness over the suffering, joyful that Christ is in control and has saved us. Under letter B, number two, bad, sinful distress, we defined last time. That is sadness over suffering. Wanting it gone, same thing. Sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but not caring about God's will. But not caring about God's will. So this would be, I want it gone no matter what. And under this bad distress then, this would be where compromise comes in, where I don't care what God wants for my life or what his word says, I want this out no matter what. Joy is then replaced with anxiety and or depression. So we've defined distress, letter A, letter B last time. You now have a reviewed understanding of good distress versus bad distress. And now letter C, where we finished off two weeks ago, three weeks actually, three Sundays back on um, October 9th. Letter C. Joy and good distress are partners, as I just mentioned. They're partners. Crying, sad, grieving over the trial, but rejoicing that Christ is in control, that you're in his will, and that you are saved. Now, new material... Below the dotted line, we need to distinguish these emotions. That's what I'm attempting to do is to show us when our emotions are righteous and when they're sinful. So when you have joy with salvation, yet sad over the hardship of the trial, you're living righteously. But now we need to go to a negative aspect, two of them actually, and define the difference between joy with good distress, letter D, versus anxiety, fear. And then we may get to, may not get to the next one, joy with good distress versus depression. How do I know when my distress is righteous and not anxiety, fear? How do I know the difference between distress and depression? We have to keep these separate. So that's what we're looking at tonight. Now, let's talk about the fact that you can actually have righteous distress and grief. Go to Ephesians 4. These are on the blank lines under letter D. I haven't gotten to point one yet let's just remind ourselves that it is, it is possible to have righteous grief over suffering. That it is not sinful to have, necessarily, to have grief while suffering. Verse 30 of Ephesians 4 talks about our speech, that we need to have wholesome and growing, edifying speech. In verse 29, And then verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The implication is, in verse 30, that the Spirit can be grieved when we have bad talk in verse 29. So when he hears us speaking bad things, immoral things, unbiblical things, it grieves him. That word grief, okay, is a root that is the same as 1 Peter 1, 6 distress. Please write that down. Lupeo. Go back under Mark number three, if you would. Up at the top, or middle of the top of the front page, where it says Mark three, Christian suffering is distressing. And you see underneath it, you have been distressed, and I said one Greek word. That's uh, written out in Greek. That first letter is L. The next letter is like our English, U equals U. The next symbol, that's the mathematical symbol for pi. You see that, L-U-P, pi? You've seen that mathematical pi symbol? And we think that's a mathematical number. Well, actually, it's a letter in the Greek alphabet, okay? So you have L-U-P. The next letter is N in Greek, but N in Greek is E in English, lupe, okay? Now, in Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve. That is Oh, Same thing. It's just a different root. The same root, but a different form of the word. Lupeo. So the word is distress. Exactly in 1 Peter 1.6. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So when we have unwholesome speech in verse 29, we're in Ephesians 4 right now, verse 29, verse 30, and he gets grieved over that. Is he sinning? As God, when he grieves over that. Are you sure? Why? Why would that not be sin? Oh, okay. Just just want to make sure of that one, okay? Just make sure you all know that. God can't sin. Okay, very good. So, God can't sin, so he can. That's righteous grief. It's the exact same word where Peter says, You grieve. So if God can grieve righteously, can we? So it's grief over sin. Write that down under letter D. We're grieving over sin. Sin in our lives. Did you ever cry over sin? Did you ever get discouraged over your sin? That's not Oh, stop being depressed over your sin. Stop being discouraged over your sin. Okay, that's not something we should do. We should never want to stop being discouraged. Maybe depressed would not be a good word, but certainly grieving over our sin. That would certainly be right. What is this distress that he's having here? Sorrow over our sin so it is okay to have sorrow over your sin it is okay to have sorrow over your hardships we don't just keep it there the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control i missed one there i always miss one patient hey i said patience love joy peace patience kindness goodness Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Okay, those are the character qualities, the perfect character qualities of Jesus Christ as a perfect human. So Jesus in heaven has perfection of those character qualities, so he has joy in heaven, but he has great grief. And he looks down in this world and sees sin, he's grieved when we have sin that we don't repent of. So he has joy and grief at the same time. So we can too, okay? So this is sorrow over sin, sorrow over suffering. Write that under that letter D, if you're so inclined. And you are in good standing when you do that. When you sorrow over your suffering and sorrow over your sin, you're in good standing with Christ. So this proves, write it down under letter D, this proves that suffering will bring pain and sorrow. So don't go searching for lack of grief as an evidence that you're handling trials correctly. It is not an evidence that you're handling trials correctly if you don't cry over them. The Lord was grieved and is grieved over our sin right here in verse 30. Same exact concept. So it is okay. But we're in letter D trying to figure out when it's not okay. When does distress and grief become anxiety or fear, which Jesus either on earth or in heaven does not have? So let's look continue in our note sheet number 1 half parentheses joy with distress glorifies god joy with grief glorifies god anxiety when suffering is a sinful doubting of god's goodness anxiety when suffering is a sinful this is the root of it a sinful doubting of god's goodness anxiety is worry Includes the concept of fear and worry together. Anxiety would encompass fear and worry. Whenever you're worried or anxious, nervous over a trial in your life, that's not righteous. And usually what drives the worry and the anxiety or fear is, I don't think this is ever going to end. Lack of trust in God. But we know from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1.6 that all trials are just for a little while. So even if the current suffering we're in was to last to the end of our lives, once we're in eternity, we would realize how short our lives were here. It was just a little while. So the root of this issue of anxiety is sinful doubting of God's goodness, which drives the fact that we start to have anxiety, fear, worry. Will this ever go away? Um, Another feeling that is counter to this distress, which is part of anxiety, is a feeling of being trapped, right there under half-parentheses number one, a feeling of being trapped and suffering, like God is torturing me, he's left me here to die, maybe not physically, but dying under this trial, I can't stand it. These are phrases of anxiety, I can't stand this anymore, I can't take this anymore, that is not righteous distress. These are statements of entrapment. God has abandoned me. He's not good to me. He's allowed me to just be cast off. I'm floating away." Philippians four, which I've taught you in our series on peace versus anxiety and fear, certainly tells us once again that we need to be careful with this issue of joy and distress. We saw in Philippians 1:6 that joy goes with righteous grief and distress. Now in Philippians four, we see that joy does not go with anxiety. Philippians 4 shows that joy does not go with anxiety. We had better not excuse anxious, fearful feelings of panic and entrapment as okay with joy. Uh Uh-uh. Because verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Are joy and anxiety then righteous partners? Our joy and anxiety, righteous partners. Yeah, twice, twice I asked. Well, you guys aren't listening to me, huh? Who's thinking? Who's thinking about pizza? When I say our joy and anxiety, righteous partners, that doesn't sound like a question. Okay. Our joy and anxiety, righteous partners. No, they're not. Rejoice, verse 4. Be anxious for nothing, in verse 6. Our joy and distress in Philippians 1 6, righteous partners. And not Philippians 1 6, and 1 Peter 1 6, excuse me. Our joy and distress in 1 Peter 1 6, that we're in. Are they righteous partners? Yes, they are. Okay. So these are opposites here in Philippians 4.4 and 4.6. Look at Romans 9. Notice verse 1. Romans 9.1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Is he walking in the Spirit in verse 1? Yes. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Is that righteous sorrow and righteous grief? Yeah, because he's led by the Spirit. So the sorrow and grief are not depression or anxiety. And the reason he's sorrowful is because his brethren are going to hell by and large. That's what he says later on. We're drawing distinctions. trying to understand when is my emotional state of being over suffering? Righteous with joy, when is it unrighteous with joy? Number two in your note sheet. Number two under letter D at the very bottom of the front side. Joy with distress does not doubt, but grows in faith. Joy with distress does not doubt God, but grows in faith. Joy with distress does not doubt God, but grows in faith. But anxiety, when tried, fears God's abandonment. Fears God's abandonment. That's what anxiety is. That's why in Philippians 4 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but contrast to that, in everything let your request be made known. In prayer, let everything be made known to God. So the point that Paul is making is don't have anxiety, trust God in prayer. Let your request be made known unto God. So the anxiety that we feel is a feeling that God has abandoned us, put us on a shelf, is not working in our lives. This is just the chaos of my life that has nothing to do with God. That's what drives anxiety. Next, under that point, anxiety breeds backsliding. Anxiety breeds backsliding. But righteous grief would not make you backslide. Righteous grief would not make you backslide. So just ask yourself, I'm so sad over this trial. Why are you sad? What's God doing? I don't understand. Boom. Depression or anxiety. Questioning God means my faith is being brought under attack by my choice and I'm not trusting in God. I don't know why he's doing this. Why would he continue to do this? Why is he leaving me here? The idea is he's basically abandoned me as a loving God. That's what drives anxiety. So obviously, when we're anxious, we're not praying. It's another test to tell if your grief is righteous or not. If you're not praying more over the suffering that you're in, but praying less, then you know that you're filled with anxiety or depression, and because prayer is the key that tells God and tells yourself that you're walking in faith as you're grieving. Let's go to the Old Testament. Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Verse 1. Shout joyfully to God all the earth, so there you have joy, right? Psalm 66, verse 1. Look at verse 9. Who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip, for you have tried us, O God. So he says in the midst of trials, verse 1, he still has joy. In verse 9, he is trusting that God has not abandoned him. He has faith. He admits that he's under suffering in verse 10, but he has faith. This suffering is pretty bad, verse 10. You've refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. That's the idea of being trapped, caught. Circumstances not in my control. This is part of suffering. We're living in a sinful world. We're surrounded by billions of unbelievers. And Satan is roaming to and fro. How could we not think that we're fish in a net? We are. The trials that are in our life are exactly this comparison right here in verse 11. We're trapped in a net by circumstances we can't control. The issue is that God is the fisherman, though, and he's controlling the net. It says, you brought us into the net. So no matter what unbelievers trap us in or do to us unjustly or force us into that are not pleasant, remember that all nets are operated by the fisherman God in verse 11. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. That's pretty bad, isn't it? What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that God controls all the out-of-control issues of life. All the hardships of suffering are controlled by him. We went through fire and through water, verse 12. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Maybe in this life, maybe in the next. This is why I have always said and believe that the scriptures teach that when you're in suffering, just wait. Don't try to fix the problem yourself. That's what the end of verse 12 is. You brought us out. You've got to trust that he will direct your steps. We get anxious We decide to make decisions to fix what God obviously isn't doing. This is a glorious passage that tells us to wait. I've told you many times in past sermons that you would do well to start with Psalm 1 and go all the way to 150. And what you should do with a concordance is just look up the word wait. I call it wait control. W-A-I-T. The word is used by the the psalmist writers dozens if not hundreds of times. And what you get at the end of the study of the word wait in the Psalms is that when you're in terrible suffering, what you should do is nothing. Just wait. God will direct Most believers don't think that that's right. They live by God helps those who help themselves. Do you see that in verse 12? He's trapped in a net. People are riding roughshod over him. Verse 12, you brought us out into a place of abundance. And what you're doing while you're in the fisherman's net, feeling like you might be trapped, which isn't true, is you do verse 20. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. So does he still love you? Back in verse 11, when you're trapped in the net of suffering, when wicked people are unjustly doing things to you in verse 12, and when you feel like you're burning up in the extremes of fire and flood, should you still believe that God is in love with you? Yeah. This cures anxiety. Wait, wait. And of course, verse 18 is the famous verse on sin. You better be repenting of sin in verse 18 and not regarding it. Regarding sin as a terrible sin. There's a wide range of meaning from staring at it, observing it, loving it, keeping it alive. It's, it's a word that means, basically means cherishing. Like if you had a nice watch And you just were regarding it. It's not looking at it. It's, oh, I love my watch. And that's what we do with sin. And in verse 18, he says, if I do that, then the Lord will not hear. So that's an excellent verse in the midst of suffering that you want to make sure that even though you're still a sinner, you're not regarding your sin. And you can't repent while you're regarding sin. Okay? Okay. I can't throw my watch out while I'm kissing it. Okay? What a great psalm. This is one of the best places you could ever go, and there's so much more in it. Verse 7, he rules by his might forever, believes in the power of God. This just destroys anxiety, a sense of being trapped and panicky, It's all a cry of God is not in control and does not love me. This, you could spend weeks and months on verses 1 to 20 and learn so much about joy in verse 1, loving kindness in verse 20, faith in verse 12, and resting in the Lord in the midst of such hardships. God has heard, verse 19, He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. That's faith. Back to your note sheet. Back to the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. So, I've taught you, and hopefully it's now clear, the difference between good grief and sinful fear and anxiety. Got that one figured out? If you're sad over your troubles and you're stopping praying, you're not reading your Bible as much anymore, you're questioning God, you feel panicky, you feel anxious to get out from this, I've got to do something, God's not doing anything, then you're sinning like crazy. If you're grieving over your trial, I'm waiting on you and I will sit here and wait till you get me out of the net. I trust your loving kindness. You direct my circumstances. Others say that you don't do that. I believe by faith that you do. I have joy in my salvation. I'm weeping over this trial. I'm asking for it to be removed. But I will sit here and wait in faith until you make the decision, if this is your will, to remove me from under this suffering. That's what stops anxiety. And that is precious few believers that follow that path. Sad to say. And then we come to letter E on the back side. Joy with good distress versus depression. In fact, Christians have so little ability to trust God in their trials that things that I've read have shown that evangelical believers are pretty much medicating themselves with antidepressants as much as the lost do. What does that say about the sufficiency of our God? I'm depressed and I've got to take pills. Huh? not enough. In fact, not only is he not enough, he's nothing. Imagine. I was going to bring a pill up here, but I figured you wouldn't see it. Imagine, the God of this universe is not sufficient to deal with my discouragement and depression, but this pill was will do it and it will make me feel good. And, uh, and even though the advertising says that if you take antidepressants they may cause you to be suicidal, be that as it may, that contradiction, I'm still going to trust the little yellow pill over the issues of faith. Now we do understand, don't we, the difference between medicating for actual physical problems is not sin. But medicating for depression is. But they out there will tell you that depression is a medical problem. Why would you listen to anything they say? Are you going to listen to them for your comfort on the fact that there's no hell? Will you listen to them as they tell you that you're a good person? Will you listen to them when they tell you that all that you think is sin in your life is really not your fault? It's a problem of your parents, your grandparents, possibly society, or your great-great-great-grandparents back in the 1800s. Why would you listen to them on that? But believers come walking along like lambs to the slaughter. Well, we know that the mind is complex and and uh, the Bible is simplistic, and we we understand because our world tells us that these things can't be fixed by stop sinning and trusting Jesus. It's too complex, and so we need researchers, and we have them. God has given us researchers who have figured out a substance that you can put down your throat that will all of a sudden take your depression away. And if my depression's God and it worked, then it must be true. Well, okay, well then just shoot heroin, because that'll make you feel real good as well. Of course, you want to OD, because then you're dead, right? Or, like President Clinton, snort coke. That's why he had a big red nose, President Clinton. But some of you are too young to remember him. I didn't touch that woman. That was President Clinton as he was snorting. One of our great leaders. Great leaders. Just like we have today Trump and Biden. Great leaders. So, how can we trust this world? When they tell us that depression is a clinically difficult and complex psychosis of the medical genre, just like taking blood pressure medicine. The church today just says, okay, I guess they're right. The Bible says otherwise. Draw a line in the sand. If you're going to believe society that you're clinically depressed and you need some pills to take care of it, then please don't have your feet, one in Christianity and one in the world. Jump full force into the world and abandon Christianity. You can't pick and choose. Because you and I aren't God. So number one. Distress versus depression, underneath letter E. Joy with good distress is sadness while having faith in God and waiting on God in prayer. Joy with good distress is sadness while having faith in God and waiting on God in prayer. And since I'm praying, that makes it hopeful grief. It is hopeful grief. Prayer is really the thermometer of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, you can read your Bible every day legalistically and never grow, but I'll tell you, I've never met a legalistic prayer warrior. You can read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, just get this habit of reading, churning it out, never remember anything that you read in it, and just keep doing it. But you backslide, you don't legalistically pray, pray. You know what you do? You stop praying. And you know why? Because God ain't there and he ain't helping you. So that's the barometer. That's the thermometer. If Your prayer life is trashed. You're trashed spiritually. Okay? And, and this isn't like little five minutes a day keeps the devil away. I mean, imagine any of us here saying we'll only talk to each other at the most five minutes a day. Can you Imagine me just saying to Sue, bless you, Sue. Bless me. Bless me, honey. Bless you, Sue. Uh, Sue, be with me. Be with me, Sue. Um, Help me to have a good day, Sue. That's about it. See you tomorrow. What kind of a relationship is that? We stop talking to each other, by the way, human to human. We basically have stopped having a relationship, haven't we? Right? just some really bad people that some of you work with, I do, and you'd better not talk to them. There's some people I don't talk to at that anonymous place I work, okay? Because they're crazy, okay? So I stay away from them. I have no relationship. Some of these guys I've worked with for 12 going on 13 years, I don't even know their last names. Don't talk to them at all. No relationship, see? Little baby prayers to Jesus. Little time spent in prayer means you have a trashed relationship with Christ. You can't legalistically churn it out. I've never met anyone, oh, okay, I'm just gonna pray these prayers legalistically, now here we go, blah, 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 blah. No, you just stop praying. Back to your notes. Joy with good distress and sadness while having faith in God and waiting in God in prayer. So if you're sad and praying more about your suffering, that's a sign that you're okay. Because prayer means hope. This is important. Depression, next, is hopelessness. Hopelessness on the blank lines is prayerlessness. There's certain things I do not pray for, okay? I don't pray this, God save the whole world.
1: Never pray that. Why?
0: He's not going to. Many are called, but few are chosen, okay? So I do not believe that that's a prayer I should ever pray because it will never be answered. Are we clearing it? Okay. Lord, I pray that you would come back and restore Israel before the tribulation. I never pray that one. Why would I never pray that one? Because he's not coming back before the tribulation to restore Israel. He's going to restore Israel after the tribulation. I don't pray things I don't believe will ever happen. I don't pray things that I never believe will happen. Why aren't you praying more? you don't believe that they will happen. Isn't that simple? Isn't that a happy, simple little truth? Prayerlessness means I don't believe it would do any good. What's the point? And we're all tempted that way, aren't we? You know why we're tempted to stop praying on things over and over and over again? Because we're not seeing the answers we want. So it goes like this: Pray, no answer. Pray, no answer. Pray, no answer. Pray, no answer. No, no answer. No answer. No answer. No. Pray, pray, pray. no, I won't go pray. I'll pray again. Pray again. Nah, no, it's not. So the long-term nature of not getting the answer we want is tempting us to choose to believe that God doesn't answer prayer. That's bad. Depression always is hopelessness, and hopelessness is prayerlessness. 1 Thessalonians 4, in regards to the rapture, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brethren, talking to believers about those who are asleep. Asleep is a term for Christians who die. So that you will not grieve over them being asleep, as do the rest, unbelievers, Who have no hope. That is a blockbuster verse that tells us there is grief that is hopeless and grief that is hopeful. He says, not he does not say do not grieve in verse 13. He says, Don't grieve as those who have no hope. So hopeless grief is is depression. Please write that down under number 1. Hopeless grief is depression. What is the point? Nothing's going to change. I give up. That's depression. Depression is hopelessness. Synonymous terms. There are terms for discouragement and depression that we will see next time that actually talk about a feeling of being cornered. I've painted my circumstances have painted me into a corner and I can never get out. I'm trapped. That is anxiety mixed with depression. So when believers die, we grieve, but we have hope that we'll see them again one day. When unbelievers die, we grieve and know we will never see them again. And when unbelievers have people who die, they have no hope. They just whistle in the dark. So they start making things up. They become insane I just felt that breeze that was my loved one he's he's with me this is what unbelievers do oh it's amazing the look on my cat is just like Uncle Joe who died that's Uncle Joe Joe right there but he's come back in my cat Uncle Joe give me a kiss this is what unbelievers do he's with me right now he's with no he's not there are no such thing as ghosts, okay? Human souls aren't floating around on this planet. They're either in heaven or in hell. And you don't leave either reality, you can't go back and forth. It's what pagans do no hope. So they invent realities. It's like Superman, it's nothing more than that fictitious characterization of the dead. Put a cape on your dead loved one and think he's flying through the air. The Bible says that's hopeless. Okay? So, this depression one, we've got more to study on. But I think you can see that the thermometer under letter E, distress versus depression, means that you have grief, verse 13, with hope. So it's not in reference to those that have dead, but your own trials that you're going through. You're sad, but you have hope that God is in control and directing this suffering. I will wait, and I need to pray more as evidence of my faith in the Lord in the midst of the suffering. For when my prayer life is trashed, I am spiritually trashed. Oh my goodness, how the American church is trashed. What's the weakest attended service in American Bible-believing churches? Prayer meeting. Christians who don't pray, what does that say? No hope. And that's when, like I said this morning, Frank Sinatra comes back from the grave. I have no hope. God will not answer prayer. So as Frank Sinatra sang, "Oh, blue eyes... I'll do it my way. Yeah, sure, Frank. Sure. Really? Seriously? So we start crafting and moving and fixing our problems because God said bye-bye. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not said bye-bye to your children. Your word tells us that you will never leave us or forsake us. Our Experiences of suffering are not out of control. We believe, Lord, in weight control. I remember that story about John MacArthur. Many years ago, he told how when he was a little boy, his dad told him, Lord, to wait at a bus stop and he'd pick him up at 5 p.m. By 7 p.m., he was still standing there as a little child. His dad was two hours late. Finally, he pulled up in a car, screeched to a halt, grabbed his dear little John MacArthur son and said, how come you're still standing here? And little Johnny said, because daddy, you told me to wait. We're to stand in
1: our suffering and wait until
0: you come and pick us up and hug us and take us to heaven. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.